Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hi, this is Elise Hallett here at the Healthcare Symposium. I'm sitting here with Dr. Joseph Keebler, who is an associate professor of human factors at Embry-Riddle Aeronautic University. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show. Um, so you, at this conference, you're kind of serving two hats because you're also one of the co-chairs, as I understand yes, it. Yes, so uh, Tony, Andre, and myself kind of run this thing together. It is a large conference that's growing, and uh, Tony has all this knowledge of how these things work, and I've come in and kind of helped manage some of the, mainly the content and uh, managing our track chairs, who are basically our... Uh, manage of each of the separate content areas that we have and um, so it's been great and it's been this really amazing experience to be able to volunteer for this and create this thing that people love and are really enjoying. How long have you been co-chairing? Um, so this is heading into my second year. Um, I've been involved with the Healthcare Symposium for I think five years and I've been involved in the Human Factor Society for 12. So I've been doing all kinds of stuff with Human Factor Society as a volunteer since I started my graduate school in 2006. Wow, so, so pretty involved. Yeah, almost 13 years now going on. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I know here, like it just seems like every year I come back to these conferences, it's just more attendees, more mm -hmm. really fascinating talks that are done. So yeah, and I mean, that's a testament to um, all of our presenters and submitters. Uh, we have ideas and we have some top-down influence if we want to get certain people to come for instance we invite the CDC this year Tony oftentimes has FDA folks here but the content the submissions are just increasing quality and I think it's a reflection of the science because we're getting more and more involved in healthcare and, and people are getting embedded in hospitals and people are getting hired in much larger amounts in our field into these medical groups and so there's just more work coming out of these various groups and it's just getting the science is getting more mature and that's being reflected at the conference. Um, so I totally agree with you. And um, this year we had a good problem, which was we had so much excellent content, we had to expand out to a fifth track uh, that's parallel so that some of these good talks and panels could could get in because we had so many excellent ones we couldn't reject anything. So we just accepted it all and created a fifth parallel session, which is a testament to how excellent all these submissions are. That's fantastic. So, And we are growing. We like, we like how intimate it is. As you noticed at lunch, um, everyone's in the one room. And um, everyone here at the conference, these rooms are all next to each other. And so everyone can interface and move together as a group. And you get up to, you know, we're at 680. Uh, you get up to 700, 800, 900, you start to lose that. So mm -hmm. I think we're at a really nice number now. And I don't know how much more we'd want to grow um, and lose that intimacy and lose that ability to, hey, see that same person throughout the three days and be able to introduce yourself, um, even if you miss them the first time. Um, the larger meeting is, is probably over double this size. Um, and I find that I'll see someone once and then I'm there for a week and I won't see them again, so. Yeah, no, I've definitely experienced that myself going right. to, it's good to hear. one of the larger conferences. I think that's one of the reasons why I keep coming back to sure. this one Excellent. because of that intimacy. Um, you know, so from, from a co-chair perspective, what, what's one of the objectives that you kind of have in mind when you set out starting to put together this conference? It's a really good question. Um, I think we want to showcase the best science that we're doing as human factors professionals and outward face to the world. So we want to show it to the medical professionals and folks working in industry and in government who do healthcare work that we're this tried and true method and way of doing things that makes the world safer for patients and that um, we are really trying to 
show how the science can function and these methods we use and, and so folks are here that can take these lessons back to their hospitals or their medical units or their companies and, and make positive change. So I see it as a very applied conference and a very outward facing conference. Mm -hmm. um, we're not here to talk to each other about our methods. We can do that through our own research journal articles and, and, and throughout through HFES, the main conference. But here, I really feel like it's a showcase for medical doctors and nurses and quality improvement specialists and managers of hospitals and companies that make medical devices that they can learn methods that are going to improve the quality of their products or the quality of their patients. Absolutely. Uh, lives, so. Great opportunity for a lot of different disciplines to come together all with this main goal of right. providing safe and effective use for, for patients. Correct. I agree. So, I mean, you're not wearing just that one hat, though, when you're here, right? Right. <laughs> um, right, so I'm actually a presenter, too, and I'm a chair of one of the sessions, luckily. I'm done with my I talked this morning, um, and I chaired the session this morning, so now I'm, I am just wearing the chairing hat the, <laughs> of this conference from here till, till I leave. But I, I, you know, I'm also a professor. I have graduate students, and my students submit posters and presentations here as well. Um, so I'm an active researcher, and I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm a professor, so I teach multiple courses. So I wear a lot of different hats in regards to my role as a member of Human Factors. Uh, and when I started working with the conference kind of more formally, I was also working for the uh, main HF uh, conference as a, a program chair for the healthcare technical group. So I kind of that's kind of where I cut my teeth because. Um, putting together that conference um, is very challenging, and I believe during my tenure there, the HGTG became the largest technical group in the, out of HFES. And I remember one year I had to help review up to 80 submissions because some reviewers dropped out. And so, so it really taught me how to put together a program and all the work that goes into it, and that gave me a huge appreciation. So that when I'm managing people that are doing that, I really I know what they're doing, I know what they're going through, and I'm, I have the skills to help them when I need it. So. Um, so yeah, I've been doing this a long time, um, volunteering, and I think, you know, to those listening, volunteer work is how you get involved. The society, people don't understand this, but these societies, these scientific societies exist on the shoulders of volunteerism. Um, without volunteerism, there is no management, there is no reviewers, there is no chairs or track chairs. They are all people who are willing to take out extra time of their lives to commit to this and, and spend weekends or, or months uh, during their regular lives, and they're all very busy people to just commit to putting together this conference. And so we work on this all year. Me and Tony will start talking probably next couple weeks about next year. We're already, I mean. Yeah, I interrupted me a meeting. In a, <laughs> you called me in a meeting about next year already. So we've already been talking about it because we're going we're going to Canada and we have some folks here from Canada. And we want to inquire them on what, who wants to come and who are we going to contact. So, yeah. so it kind of never stops a sense, but that's what makes it awesome. And that's how societies survive. It, you don't have people, if you don't have people volunteering, uh, there's nothing there's no one to do the work so absolutely and, and so I know one of the common themes that has come up from some of the other interviewees is you know for those looking to get involved looking to know more about the field you know volunteering and getting involved in yes. these kinds of organizations you have the to first way and that's that's what all the work being done is volunteers um, we have a, a company that helps manage the conference and our website which is Smith Buckland but all the chairing session chairs and infrastructure of the society is based on volunteer work. So, and I think that's true of most scientific societies. 
Well, so. I think you have a couple of really solid volunteers here because it really shows <laughs> and it comes so across very nicely. I do. We're very lucky. We've always uh, we've chosen track chairs that have been excellent across the years. Every year they've been amazing. Uh, we tend to rotate them out just because we, you know giving people a chance to, to step up and get a line on their CV. Um, but we've always had great people. I would every track chair I've had has been excellent. So fantastic. <laughs> um, so. You know, popping over to your other hat for a minute here. So you said that you're associate professor professor <laughs> of human factors mm -hmm. at Embry Riddle. Mm -hmm. So there, um, you know, what what's your specialty? Uh, so I kind of see myself as a teams and training expert. That was my background, and I started my PhD studying military teams that would mm. control unmanned systems, uh, and I did my dissertation on combat identification and most of my graduate research was funded through uh, ARL, the Army Research Laboratory. Um, but when I finished that, I ended up postdocing halftime with my PhD advisor. He had some money, so I continued doing HRI, human robot teamwork research. But I also started doing healthcare research with Eduardo Salas. And Eduardo is a former president of our society and also an IO psychologist who studies teams. And I got really into teamwork. And so I've still been doing teamwork, but now in the medical field. Mm -hmm. um, and the main thing I study, I study a lot of things. and. I have a pretty diverse interest, uh, range of interest, but I've been saying handoffs and checklists and the use of protocols and checklists in regards to patient care transitions. That's one of the kind of problem areas we're seeing right now, um, and I think it's one where the solutions that have existed in human factors for maybe almost a century with checklists and aviation. Uh, so a lot of my work is focused on that, uh, accident investigations and trying to understand um, what went wrong, what went right when a patient maybe got injured or killed in the middle of a, of a surgery mm -hmm. uh, but I do a lot of different stuff and I have vastly diverse uh, interests uh, uh, from everything from statistics I tend to teach statistics and research methods in okay. my graduate program um, to uh, accident investigations teams um, I still do some military work so I'm pretty I keep a diverse portfolio because you just never know where the science is going to go and you never know where the next funding is going to come from. So you got to kind of keep a couple irons in the fire. Oh, absolutely. So, um, I don't um, really have one niche per se. Plus so it keeps things interesting, right? It does. <laughs> and I work with a lot of different people so I can bring different skills to different teams depending on their, their needs. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm more of a kind of generalist practitioner who is a pro general problem solver, mainly through the lens of teams and training, but not always. Uh, versus some people who are very hyper-focused on, on one area, which is great too. We need, we need both types. Um, so, yeah, so I'm kind of a problem solver by trade, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> would be what I do. So. Right. So <laughs> going back to one of the things that you mentioned, you mentioned handoffs mm -hmm. and handovers. Could you define that for those who are less familiar with Yeah, sure. With it? So that's basically when a um, uh, doctor or nurse usually is passing a patient off uh, to another provider because of a shift change, uh, or it could be because of a break or it could be because they're moving across units. So you could imagine one where you're staying in a hospital for a couple of days and every night the provider that was with you that day leaves or they maybe leave in the morning and a new provider comes in and they're giving information about you to that provider. And the way that that's done um, can lead to problems if it's not done effectively or efficaciously. So we study different tools and techniques to make that standardized and make it uh, as positive of an exchange of information. And I look at it through the lens of teamwork, so I see it as a team communication event mm -hmm. and what kind of tools and structures can be put in place so that it's done effectively and, and systematically. Um, but yeah. handoffs can also be a very short event. You could have a, a quick handoff during a surgery where an anesthesiologist steps out for 
a bathroom break yeah. and hands off temporarily to a CRNA, a, 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 basically a nurse anesthetist, for 10 minutes and then comes back in and then the CRNA maybe does not hand off. So you can have very quick ones or you can have ones where a provider leaves you and you don't ever see them again. You might be at the hospital for a couple more days. They hand you off once to another provider and then you'll, you'll never see provider A again in your stay there. Uh, so there's vast amount of them. We study mainly, um, and I say we, my, my research team at Embryo studies mainly shift change handoffs and perioperative, so handoffs surrounding the surgical environment. So either going to surgery or leaving surgery and going to like an intensive care unit. Um, so. so I can see there's you know quite a variety in the different types of handoffs depending mm -hmm. on what you're focused on. Mm -hmm. And I know you know one of the the big questions that kind of comes up is like oh you've got these electronic health records and so looking at the patient's chart, but not everything's put there and how mm -hmm. much is being stored mentally and yes. so you know are those all things that you're kind of yes. looking at? Yes. So um, the electronic health record is not something I study per se, but I, I'm familiar with it. I have a lot of providers that you know have various issues with various technologies. It's always like a treasure hunt looking, especially when a patient's really ill, digging through the record, especially imagine an older patient who has a 40, 50 year medical record. There's a lot of information in there. Some of it's just PDF pictures and stuff. And you gotta just dig through this. And these providers have barely any time in their lives to go and do this with every patient. Um, so I see the handoff as a systematic kind of way for them to communicate pertinent information that, that's available to them mentally um, in the moment to the air provider without having to tell the air provider, hey, go dig in the EMR for the next 45 minutes. Like instead, hey, there's some highlights about this patient case. Here's what I think is going on with them. Is there any, there's certain things that might arise during your stay, their, your handling of them, um, be aware of that. Uh, so it could be a point of resilience. Um, mm. But it can also be a point of failure in the sense of the wrong things communicated or something's left out, errors of admission and commission, that it can lead to patient negative patient outcomes. I forgot to tell them about the specific allergy, or I mistook an allergy for another allergy, or I wrote down the wrong drug name, or when I wrote it down it was illegible, or you didn't hear it, you weren't paying attention when I said it to you. So that's where the structure comes in, and checklists and protocols are, are they're not a silver bullet, but they're, they enhance it. Mm -hmm. They enhance the handoff and they make sure that, hey, I don't miss that one piece of information I need to say because you have a cognitive aid reminding you. Just like a pilot flying a plane and he goes through, you know, we never want to rely on pilot's memories to make every check on a plane. And maybe we shouldn't be the same with doctors to make every check on a patient. We should make sure that they have an external cognitive aid to support that thinking. Yeah, because you can see the, the quick cascade of events if one yes. of those things is lost. And they don't have time. So these yeah. are quick conversations. These might be 30 seconds or a minute. And they might pass five or six patients in five minutes. Uh, and so how do you do that systematically? So that's kind of what we've been studying. We just published a paper, myself, uh, Alex Shaparo, um, Elizabeth Lazar, who are two of my colleagues in ergonomics and design, kind of about the theories behind checklists. Because what's funny about checklists and protocols is that they've been used ubiquitously in, in aviation. But no one's really empirically proven them. They've kind of just came out of the industry and they worked. But there's not much theory on why and how they work. And so we're starting to kind of piece that together. We're writing some papers about how they affect information processing, how they affect memory, and how they enhance memory or de-enhance memory, depending on what kind of checklist it is. And um, putting together all in one place, the different taxonomies and stuff. So it's kind of an exciting area. Um, 
I don't know, checklist. It's like some people are probably that's the most boring thing ever, but <laughs> but we do see um, that when they're implemented, I've done meta analyses on this that they do save lives and they do mm -hmm. increase provider um, outcomes and patient outcomes and organizational outcomes. So they do seem to be one effective method for improving patient safety. Uh, there's probably a million others, but it seems to be one that's important and relevant to the kinds of errors that are happening. Because a lot of errors are associated with loss of information, miscommunication poor coordination so those kinds of things can be somewhat partially handled through external cognitive debates it's one way uh, i like to say let's team train every single healthcare professional in the world but that is a monumental expensive task so a piece of paper with some things to think about when you're talking about a patient is an easy fix or at least a one way forward so that sounds fascinating <laughs> it really does you so. <laughs> <laughs> thank you um so you know, a lot of the, the folks listening are, you know, either just getting into human factors or um, starting to, you know, they've started down the path of human factors okay. and, you know, are kind of moving along or young human factors professionals. Um, you know, so based off of your experiences in this field, what's one piece of advice you'd give to your younger self? Um, huh, that's a really good question. I would say, you know, uh, never burn a bridge, always you never know which person you're interacting with might be that next person that's hiring you or that partner on the grant you need to go after and you would be blown away by where people end up in five or ten years and the kinds of agencies they get hired in or programs they, they enter so you know make friends it's a small community don't make enemies uh, do your best to show that you're reliable and I mean those relationships I formed in graduate school I always tell my students that those relationships end up being partnerships for life and they end up being research partners and um, you know friends that you publish with and and so you know don't burn bridges be be nice to everyone i think that goes a long way it's a really good piece of <laughs> advice because i remember my professors telling me that when i was going through okay. grad school that's good that's um, good and i've <laughs> i've had a very similar experience yeah. and you know it's a small community and mm -hmm. you tend very, to run into people only, here and only a couple thousand of us yeah About ten thousand worldwide maybe not that big and you get a bad reputation and um, you better find a bit different field to work in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so now you're, you mentioned you're planning this conference for Canada next yes, year? Yes, we're going international next year uh, to Toronto. We'll be, I'm not remembering a hotel, we were just talking about it and <laughs> I totally slipped my mind but we've been meeting with some folks from University of Toronto. Uh, they have a healthcare group there and so we're just trying to figure out what agencies in Canada we want to show up and send people and what schools and um, uh, companies and equivalent government groups to the ones we have here like the FDA or CDC we should be inviting and reaching out to to get attendance so we want to make sure that the people who are in Canada that would like to come to something like this uh, are aware of it and so that's kind of what we were starting planning today was just listing out all these hospitals and agencies and government groups and, um, various universities and stuff so it's a lot more work to be done before we get yes. there this time next year but you year. start early then you're not ever <laughs> entirely um swamped so me and tony um just work on it all year and then it's a little work at the time versus just a catastrophic amount of work right up to the end we don't neither of us are procrastinators which i think helps keep everything going so good so for everyone listening to this <laughs> if you're really fascinated from all the interviews you've been hearing then you know next year it'll be in canada great place to check out um 
Yeah, really looking forward to it. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Of course, thank really you. Really appreciate it. Um, if our viewer or audience members are interested in finding more information about you, where where can they go? Sure, uh, they can go to a couple places. So you can find my Google Scholarship, my like scientific work. Um, just type Joseph R. Keebler in the Google Scholar, and you'll find all my publications. Most of them are up there. Uh, I have a LinkedIn and, and ResearchGate account, uh, same name. Um, to find like my faculty profile, my email, and all that is on the Amberita website. And again, you could probably just type in like ERAU Joseph Keebler. And then I also have josephkeebler.com, which I think is up. I owe some money to the website host, <laughs> and I don't know if I've paid the bill, so it might be down for the next week, but it should be up back again soon. But you're not going to get much out of that, really. You'll find more through at least on my scientific side of my life through Scholar and ResearchGate, that's where you're gonna find like papers and work and stuff like that. Perfect. Um, so, but the Ember Riddle website has links to all that. So if you go to my Ember Riddle homepage, there's a link to all of my other um, profiles on that webpage too, so. Great, and we'll try and include those links in awesome. the show notes. Hopefully for they're working, so. <laughs> we'll keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, at the end of every show, they always end with, uh, it depends, because mm -hmm. as you know, in human factors, it, it, it really, Depends. It always depends. <laughs> so on the count of three, uh, we'll just do a it depends. Okay. So one, two, three, it, it depends. depends. <laughs> Thank you so much. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.